welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Jan Beatty, Todd Davis, Ross Gay, and Amy Nezakumatadahil. You will now hear Todd Davis provide introductions. So, good afternoon. It's good to see lots of bodies here. This is the poem is a bodily thing. I've got four bodies up here. Actually, five, because that man's doing hard work. We've got Jan Beatty. Uh, yes, all right. I guess I don't even have to say author of Red Sugar and Switching Yard, right? And I've got Amy Hill here. Yeah. And her beautiful poems about all the creatures in the world. And we got Ross Gay down here. And Ross's poems of joy, as well as some of the deepest grief and some of the, the, the most abrupt violence I can imagine, and coming back around to joy. And I, I'm Todd Davis. <laughs> as I mentioned over there, I'm the son of uh, a veterinarian and the grandson of farmers, so maybe I'm the, the most pragmatic uh, of the, the speakers up here. And, and I also used to be a basketball coach, so I put my stopwatch on. I won't make you run, you know, uh, poetry wind sprints all afternoon. So, you're sitting in your seat, and I'm going to read you a poem by David Budbill. Do something with your body. Yak, yak, yak. All these intellectuals ever want to do is talk. They think words will get them somewhere. Why don't they take a hike or catch a fish or cook a meal or cut and split some wood or make love or dance? Why don't they do something with their bodies? Maybe then they'd begin to know what to talk about, the poet said as he sat there talking to his paper. Yak, yak, yak. So I don't know if you know David's work. He publishes with Copper Canyon. Uh, He's homesteaded up uh, in the northeast kingdom of Vermont since the early 1970s. He's heavily influenced by Zen Buddhism. Uh, And I just got a note from David about two, three weeks ago. He's now in his mid-70s, and he's had a lot of trouble with his feet over these years. And, uh, you know, he has a collection, While We Still Have Feet, right? And the whole idea of, While We Still Have Feet, go dance, go dance, go dance. And he's having to leave his 100 acres that he and his wife, the artist Lois Eby, have homesteaded for all those years to move to Montpelier because his body's failing him. Many of us have grown up with the influence of dualism, right? Body, soul, flesh, spirit, and thanks to Rene Descartes, or we can go back farther than that, maybe Gnostic Christians, we could go back farther than that. We end up celebrating one and denigrating the other quite often. Thankfully, I didn't grow up in a house like that. As I mentioned, I'm the grandson of farmers. I'm the son of a veterinarian. My mom uh, was a United Methodist lay minister, And so I grew up thinking the body was a sacred thing, but I also grew up thinking it was what I am. I am a body. I don't have a body. I am a body. Because if I have a body, right, I can go buy a new one. I can turn it in. And we're an ultra-consumeristic culture, uh, and we often treat our bodies like that. I also believe the body... uh, And the brain are all of one piece. And so what goes into our body in terms of nutrition, exercise, maybe what happened uh, at our conception, maybe if our mother's breastfed us, right? We all know our brains really grow well on breast milk. All that shapes who we are up here, but that's shaped with the whole body. And it allows us to write a certain kind of poem. So I love Sharon Old's poem, The Pope's Penis. and, And I hope many of you know it because of her attack on that division of sacred and profane. So the Pope's penis, it hangs deep in his robes, a delicate clapper at the center of a bell. It moves when he moves, a ghostly fish in a halo of silver seaweed, the hair swaying in the dark and the heat. And at night, while his eyes sleep, it stands up in praise of God. (laughs) And I say amen. That's what it does. And to deny that, 
uh, you know, I don't know how many of you know Galway Cannell's wonderful poem, Holy Shit. Uh, it's in his book, Imperfect Thirst. And, of course, he begins with all of these epigraphs throughout history in which uh, Christ's divinity suddenly becomes uh, divorced from humanity. And we get these absurd uh, uh, declarations that Christ uh, did not defecate or urinate. And so I like the Pope's penis. That's, that's more like the real biology of who we are. And so, uh, as I said, th- you know, my mother was a United Methodist lay minister, and this poem comes out of, of her teaching me the body was a sacred thing. It's called The Blessing of the Body, which is the house of prayer. Look at the way we bow, the way we kneel to find dark fruit between leaves. Love lies among the leaves of the body, dark fruit as well. In the long light of summer, we collect sphagnum to bind our wounds and tannin stains our body for months before wearing away. Like the sun, bear's tongue darts among leaf shade, pink tasting the warmth of body's blush. As we enter the house of prayer, let us remember love is guileless and surrenders all its labors, ripest fruit before peeling, strength of muscle, which remembers the beloved's embrace, claws thrust into the rib's cave, Sweet honey, rippled by sun, brought forth to the lips of the one who sustains us. And that notion of the one who sustains us, I come from a tradition in which the divinity is in the body, and the body is sustaining us, and so that's very important to me. Um, I remember the first time I encountered Yeats's poem, Crazy Jane Talks with the Bishop, and I said, oh, thank you. Again, another attack on that division. And so Crazy Jane talks with the bishop. I met the bishop on the road, and much said he and I. Those breasts are flat and fallen now. Those veins must soon be dry. Live in a heavenly mansion, not in some foul sty. Fair and foul are near of kin, and fair needs foul, I cried. My friends are gone, but that's a truth, nor grave nor bed denied. Learned in bodily lowliness and in the heart's pride. A woman can be proud and stiff when on love intent, but love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement, for nothing can be soul or whole that has not been rent. And excrement plays a large role in my life and in my poems. Um, It does. The the, the poem that allowed me to actually become a poet was Maxine Kuhlman's The Excrement Poem. Son of a, you know, of a veterinarian, grandson of, of, of uh, farmers, I have mucked so many stalls, cleaned so many kennels, cleaned up the, the, the most pungent offal of the sickest dogs you can imagine. Uh, and when I mention this to students in my classes, so I teach environmental studies at Penn State, uh, they all, you know, their faces scrunch up and, oh, we don't talk about scat. And, you know, you know do you have a fixation on, on things scatological, Todd? And it's, no, no, it's a miracle, our bodies take in food. Uh, it leaches out the nutrients. Uh, we get rid of what it doesn't need, and if we deal with it effectively, right, it even leads to what will grow for us to eat again. I also spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the bodies around me, not just human but animal bodies and my dependence on those bodies. Obviously, the body of the earth sustains us, and that dualism I talked about earlier clearly We live as if we don't depend upon the body of the earth. Often we abuse our own bodies and live as if we don't depend upon our own bodies. Uh, And so I got to thinking, and this will be in my next book called Winter Kill, how many bodies have I consumed and what will I do with my own body when I die? And so it's called Carnivore. And the epigraph comes from the Gospel of Luke. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I slept, and in my sleeping became the things I loved and killed. More than 20 deer, nearly 50 cows, 85 hogs and 31 lambs, countless rabbits longing to mate in their dens, and 93 squirrels searching the treetops for leafy nests. 66 of the best-tasting ducks, teal and ring-neck divers, presented at the feet 
by a good dog's jaws, by a canine persistence, I'm still learning to obey. I slaver at the sound of geese flying over the tops of sycamore in the floodplain. I'm a slave to the memory of each one I've plucked and gutted, the many animals I've butchered and eaten. So when I rise from the pool of blood my dreams float in, the fire sparks with dripping fat, with the smell of my own burning flesh consumed in the body's oven. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that if you uh, go on a fast, let's say you start to fast and, and you reach... Uh, four or five days, your body literally is starting to consume itself, a carnivore in and of itself. I mentioned Maxine Kuhlman, and so I'll read you a poem that I think is of great beauty. Uh, I love to go out and spend time in horse pastures. And I had an odd upbringing, right? My father always said, do you have to micturate? Um, my guess is you didn't grow up. You probably had a dad who said, or a mom, do you have to go pee-pee or wee-wee? I, I was asked if I needed to micturate. I was also taught very early that uh, urine has wonderful nitrogen, but you shouldn't pee in the same place because you'll burn a hole in, in you know, the sod because of all that heavy nitrogen, just like if you over-fertilize. And so Kuhlman, at the end, talks about that nitrogen and how things grow out of that fertility. It's called The Grace of Geldings in Ripe Pastures. Glutted half-asleep, browsing in Timothy grown so tall, I see them as through a pale green stage scrim. They circle, nose to rump, a trio of trained elephants. It begins to rain, as promised. Bit by bit, they soak up drops like laundry, dampened to be ironed. Runnels bedeck them. Their sides drip like the ribs of very broad umbrellas. And still they graze, and grazing one by one, let down their immense, indolent penises to drench the everlasting grass with the rich nitrogen that repeats them. And of course, we lost Maxine here fairly recently. I was very lucky to to, uh, meet her at AWP in Vancouver many years ago and thank her for showing me a way forward with poems. My wife's body shows up in poems along with animal bodies. And I hope you all know the rut or estrus. Uh, If if you have a a, a dog that hasn't been um, spayed, right, you you know the diapers they have to wear. Well, we have estrus running through this, including my wife with her menses. And uh, sometimes people are quiet during this poem. My wife and I laugh about it all the time, so don't feel like you have to be quiet. Because it really happened. Um, Craving. In the dust of a February snow, the coyote's track follows the deer's track. He sees in the hoof-dragged line of her stride a weariness that lengthens with winter's spiteful width, a labor he longs to release with the clean tear of canine, easy flow of artery. Along the banks, the river runs faster, snowmelt, and the quickening of time as sun throws down more light each day. A mink scores its trail, countering the river's chorus, and every 20 yards, a pool of piss sugared with blood, with estrus's craving. We're always giving ourselves away, smallest parts of our bodies flying through space, neutrinos hauling the blood and dust and piss of our existence. How surprised the buck was when he approached my wife, her menses thick in his nostrils, And even when he realized her bottom was clothed, no doe's red vulva beckoning, he could not turn away. The coyote must be fed. The mink joined to her mate. My wife ran the dirt trail back to our house, (laughs) collapsed, and later laughed at her own allure. Alone, wind coming up from the river, the buck must have raised his head, barely aware of the heart's insistent thump, as he tried once again to catch the stinging scent that spurs us on. He had very good taste, I agree. I, she, she is what spurs me on, the pheromones work. So. Um, 
And I'll close with a couple of poems that will be in this next book. Uh, My father was a a very vital man. He he felt uh, very thankful that he had good health his entire life. His parents, who were born in 1900 and 1902, who had a first and fourth grade education, they lived to be 88. Uh, So uh, if he hadn't been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, he likely would have lived much longer. But uh, at 81, we were at 12,000 feet above sea level, skiing, double black diamond runs in Colorado together, but he had some abdominal pain and uh, went home early that ski season in April. He usually would ski right through May and got the diagnosis. Uh, I I was blessed to be able to spend the last three months of his life with him, and he was a, a practical farm kid. He would get on the tractor in severe pain. He would ride the tractor into the meadow, and he would have me repair stone walls, get the barn ready. Uh, He wanted to make sure everything was set for mom. This poem, Final Complaint, comes from one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do physically with a body, especially a body I, I loved and adored like my father's. So final complaint. In the last weeks, when the drugs and the endless days of sitting made it nearly impossible to shit, My father asked me to give him an enema, makeshift, warm water mixed with salt in a red bucket, as he taught me when I was 13 at the animal clinic, the same solution we used for dogs as sick as he was now, the oppression of the tumor's growth crowding intestines. I offered to drive to the drugstore, but he refused, frugal as his farmer father, saying this would do telling me to draw the water into the plastic tube, instructing me to insert its end between his withered flanks. I squeezed through the groans, the mumbled dams, the absurd picture of a turkey baster crammed up my father's ass. After three shots of this, he said, Enough, and reached his hand to loosen the stool, to pry it from its nesting like a fouled egg. With ridiculous plops, The dark pebbles fell into the toilet's rusty water, tarnished coins at the bottom of a wishing well. And I'll close with another poem from my father's death. My mother, uh, they'd been married uh, 54 years, and uh, my mother, uh, they were so loving and continued to be sexual in in, in many demonstrative ways, you know, uh, hugging and kissing, and, and my father always patting my mom on her rump and saying, your mo- this is in, you know, at 81, your mom has a beautiful body, doesn't she? I just love her. And he literally said to me, uh, in, in uh, a, I guess it was three weeks before he died, before he went into hospice, he said, I'm so happy I will never make love to another woman. My, my father came from a background um, where he literally slept with one woman his whole life. It was my mother. And, and he had said, he said, I was so worried because my mother had adult uh, senile onset diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and had a family history of heart disease. And so he was afraid he was going to lose his wife before. And and he just kept thinking, I don't want to be with another woman. So he he said that to me. So the last time my mother lay down with my father, how did he touch my mother's body once he knew he was dying? Woods white with Juneberry? and the question of how to kiss the perishing world, where to place his arms and accept the gentle washing of the flesh. With her breast and hand, did he forgive with some semblance of joy the final bit of fragrance in the passing hour, the overwhelming sweetness of multiflora rose and the press of her skin against his? The body's cartography is what we're given flesh sloughing into lines and folds, the contours of its map-making. When at last he died, summer's heat banking against the windows, she's been, she'd been singing to him, her face near to his. And because none of us wanted it to end, we helped her climb into bed next to him, where she lifted his hand to her chest and closed her eyes. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Wow. Thanks to uh, Todd Davis for asking me to be part of this, and always happy to be with Amy and Ross. So, 
Uh, writing the body has always been the idea for me. I mean, always the thing I was striving for. Otherwise, there really wouldn't have been a purpose for me as a writer. And, you know, as, as with Todd, I have some personal memories of the body. And, um, you know, I was always looking for blood. I was born in a place called Rosalia Asylum and Maternity Hospital in Pittsburgh, which was a home for unwed mothers. And, and I just, just last year found out that it was called Rosalia Asylum. And, of course, my friends said, that makes sense you were born in an asylum. But, um, but uh, I was there the first year of my life, which I didn't know that either. Found out my real name when I was in my late 30s. So there wasn't a real mother's body there. There was just not a body, and I was always looking for her body, you know, psychically, but also in real terms, physical terms. So I, I think, you know, looking back on it now, I was always making bodies in my dreams, in my poems, in search of the body on the page, which the page for me became a home. I was adopted after a year. So, and this is very strange. Um, a lot of this is in retrospect, and I think that's sort of what we're talking about here, that things come from our bodies that we don't know about. For example, the titles of my books reflect this, and I swear I didn't realize this when I was naming my books or even after they were written. <laughs> my first book, Mad River, which now I realize is the river of blood <laughs> rushing through the body, Bone Shaker, which was the disintegration of the body, Red Sugar, which is all about blood, and my newest book, The Switching Yard, I did know about that when I was writing it. I did know that that was about finding the bodies of my birth mother and birth father, but, but you know, they came in psychic ways. Like, uh, I remember I was driving across this bridge in Ohio, and I saw this sign, Mad River, and I said, oh, that's the, that's the name of my book. And, but that was before I had written the poem. <laughs> and, I, you know, how do you know that stuff? And Bone Shaker, I saw, was the name of this broken-down, boarded-up bar. And I said, that's my second book. <laughs> and I don't know. I, again, before I wrote the poems, very strange. And Red Sugar I stole from someone um, I was interviewing this uh, poet. Her name was Sandy Yanone, and I give her credit in the back of the book, but I was interviewing her on my radio show in Pittsburgh, and um, it's called Prosody. You can podcast it, but she said, I'm like, oh, tell me more. And she said, Red Sugar. I'm like, I'm writing, I'm stealing that title from my book. And I was interviewing her. So it's a very strange thing what the body does, and Adrienne Rich has this quote that um, in poems we, we write what we don't know we know. And I always thought that was right, you know. Um, so I thought I would read a poem. Um, this is a title poem from my, from my latest book. And then say a few things about the body here. Um, I found out that my birth father was a, a Canadian hockey player, and he, um, he won three Stanley Cups played for the Pittsburgh Hornets, the New York Rangers, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And so I went looking for him. I, you know, I, um, I met him once. But then after that, I, I was still looking for him. You know what I mean? I was trying to, to write poems about him, and I couldn't because I didn't know him. And uh, so I started riding these trains all across Canada. He was born in Winnipeg. So I just kept riding across Canada trying to feel him. I mean, that's what I was doing. Uh, he was born in Winnipeg. So this is part of that train trip. It's called The Switching Yard, a couple pages. The Switching Yard. Two giant sleeping cranes, nothing as lonely as a crane not working, relic with its head bowed in the brokenness of a highway dream. Crossbar signal, arm over the road with red light eyes, were coming rolling out of Toronto with a derailment in Capriole, 
14 cars off the track, but we're headed into it. I'm riding the dirt line to Winnipeg, where my birth father is deeper than the Assiniboine and wider than the Red River Valley. He's the whole province of Manitoba. Lines of indigenous pines, otherworldly now, because this is my country. I'm the indigenous one, ghost explorer returning, looking for blood. Moving again, just cross the highway outside of Oaxaco, 11.30 p.m., and the sky's blue dark with the trees going back to their night souls. Is anyone else on this train tonight looking for ghosts? From this three-by-four window, I see underpass, underpass, deserted road so close to hillsides we are inside the land. Industrial construction yard, lines and lines of tracks, the via rail steward. If you look here, you'll find the train number. Here's the name of each car. Mine is 111 Bliss. Riding north of Thunder Bay to Winnipeg, past the green, green of Saskatchewan to the prairies of Manitoba, nothing but fields of dirt grass for miles. My father's father was here, and in some piece of dirt, some line of crossing, the wind will whip up into the Manitoba field-long clouds where the Red River meets the Union Hall, where miners and machinists said, here, here where a switch can be made out of a willow, where a switch can rise from dirt. If I can stand in the cross-cut of bodies that made my father, that grew him hard into a cross-checking fighter, I will have found blood. There is no peace like the road at night until the whistle spills its fat, long blare, must be coming up on a town. Tree branches hit the side of the train, a hand a band of light coats the trees in the distance in the secret life of Quonset Hut. All this industry and dreaming, people's lives on these dark patches of land. Are they up late, worrying about losing their job, their minds, their families? We are also separate with the same lives. The train shaking me home to no father I know right wing for the hornets, maple leaves, rangers, his steps, my steps. I can't see him, hear him, touch him, but I can walk the ground, step hard. Was there a white frame house, a woman, your mother, washing clothes by the Red River? Are these the overalls touched by your skin, the ground you walked, then two bodies slammed together one night in Pittsburgh, and I was made, and in the making, the blood ran. Who made your green, piercing eyes that bore through me with aliveness? In this ghost land, lights show up in trees, a band of light in the sky, a different look every 20 yards, the change of it all. House on the hill with five lights on, the kind of house that always has porch lights burning there's a steadiness out here that I love, a regularity I don't know. Sudden rise of land and a highway tunnel. Sign, megalots, 160 feet deep. And city lampposts sprout like alien antenna. The train stopping now, three cars unhitched, left in the yard for pickup. Where is that one sweep of wind where I'll find the switching yard? This train and that those who made you and, in that distant but bloody kingdom way, me. So I can stand and say, here. Here where Ukrainian immigrants set their stake, where the prairie met the working stiff and you were born. Shut up in this compartment, I am the small ghost. Light shines in the window from a signal, shooting the whole train car bloody red. Tomorrow in the open, I will be legion. You will see me bleeding from every pore, a woman in the switching yard. Thank you. So, you know, this is the body becoming visible to me, the body of the poem also becoming visible, but with emotion rising as real. And... You know, I just went to a great panel um, 
on poverty and uh, writing with Rachel McKibbins was on there. And uh, it, was, it was great because it was real and talking about working class writing. So often the body is left out of poetry, as you know. And I, I don't know why that is, but I have some ideas. Uh, I think, you know, it's hard to get to the body in our lives, right? I mean, everyone's, not everyone, a lot of people are walking around you know, not connected to their bodies, and and really, truly, I mean, I love bodies, I love touch, but on certain days, I don't want to be touched. On certain days, I'm afraid of touch. You know, it's hard to be in your body, you know, all the time. <laughs> I leave it on a regular basis, but... Um, <laughs> so how do you get that body on the page, trying to create a breathing poem that has an urgency that can't be turned away from. And that's always what I'm trying to do. I want something that's going to make you change your mind about something, that you're going to read it and you're going to say, oh, fuck, you know. <laughs> I, know I, th- I think I felt something, you know. <laughs> there is, uh, this is my opinion, of course, this, there's a great bias against the body in poetry, you know, as if it wasn't enough, as if it's not studied or intellectual enough. And that's, I'm sorry, that's bullshit. But um, <laughs> this became very clear when women writers began to publish and were labeled as confessional, right? And as if stories or bodies could only appear as secrets told in the black box of confession. The implication with this term has always been these confessional poems do not measure up to the real poems of the academy, which was code for poems written by white men. Right? Boy, am I tired of that. And, uh, you know, I mean, meanwhile, you had Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath writing fierce and visceral poems of the body and, and, and white men of that time labeling them as confessional. And, and uh, don't let anyone call your poems confessional. That's ridiculous. But So, anyway, later in my book, there are poems about switching bodies, and I'm going to end with a very short poem because I'm always looking for change and um, the fluidity of the body and gender. It's called switching. She's the designated hitter, switched at birth. She put Christ's nails in her hands. She dropped the baby. When there where no was no birth father, she bought shoes with steel toes and a big belt buckle. She saved the baby and became Christ our Savior. She bought the gun. She wore it like a man, wore it like a woman. She said, suck my dick, and she sucked dick. She held herself close, tangled in her own wires and switches, father of sky, dreams, and night. She was a slave to it until she called herself free, became her own man. In the steel wheels of her leaving, she became her own father. Thanks. Good to see you all. I'm so glad you went there at the end. That's one of the issues, right? The, it's the academy. Then it's some, of the, some of the questions that I have about writing about the, the body or thinking about the body is something that I want to guard against in myself because I teach in a college, you know? And there are kind of structural things about universities, it seems to me, belief structures. And... Among those belief structures, among those beliefs is that dead things value more than living things. I think. I think that's the case. It's like necrophilic. And, and there's a great suspicion, there's a great suspicion that I see over and over again of the body as a fact in time and space. So I'm just going to tell you something. Like, I was just at a reading, Pat Rosal was reading uh, over there, and and my body got all fucked up from the reading. <laughs> my body did it. My head's in my body. They're all the same thing, like Todd said. But 
my body started to change from the reading. And it was half of my body. So I was having this sort of hemispheric situation. And it was like a tingling and a numbness. And it was something deep. And my breathing changed, in fact, from listening to a poem, right? And that, to me, is actually sort of what I hope for. And that is also something that my own experience of being a reader of poems and being in conversation with other folks who maybe are not in the same sort of communities as me, that folks are suspicious of that. Our folks are suspicious of my own desire to actually move bodies with poems or the fact of bodies being moved by poems. You know, So the kinds of things that I worry about is when I hear folks say things like, I knew too much about the poet to actually know if the poems were any good. I don't know exactly, like, why that makes me nervous. But there's something about the fact that academics may train to not care about people, but to care about two-dimensional surfaces, you know. I fucking love books. I love books. I don't love books like I love people. I'm not gonna. And I really love books. Like, I really love them, you know. (laughs) I'm not gonna love books like I love people. And I'm not going to love libraries like I'm going to love gatherings. So that's one of the things that I'm sort of, when I'm thinking about the poem as a bodily fact, like I'm also thinking about the fact that the poem itself is a, a sort of vessel of breath, you know, that the line break indicates something about our body. You know, the poem on the page, it indicates something about not only our body, but the fact that what I think is like the, this beautiful primary fact of our lives, which is that we are dying. Anything that has breath in it means it indicates our death. It's, it suggests our death. And that is incredibly dramatic and moving. And to not consider that is like, it's to cut off so much of what's meaningful about a poem. You know, there are these bodies. Poems are bodies. So that's something that I think about a lot in my work. And for those of us who do exist in the academy in certain ways, I do hope that we sort of just like, just, we need to pay very close attention to what's valued because there's also other veneers. There's veneers of gender and veneers of sex and veneers of race on these assessments, right? On what is valued and what is not. When you read a poem really good, when you read it really good and someone says something to you like, um, oh, you don't have to read your poems like that. It's good on the page. No, people say that. Yeah, people say these things. I hope that, like, we do like that. <laughs> I do like that. To not think of our bodies is a, is a strange, not only a blindness, it's a strange privilege. You know, a lot of us walk through the, on the planet, walk wherever we walk, and we're thinking often about our bodies for whatever reason. To not be thinking about our bodies is a, it's a blindness, but it's also a weird assumption or something, you know. Um, if anyone tells me that I'm talking too much about my body, I'm often like, that's, that's suspicious to me. There are assumptions that some bodies are universal and some bodies are not. Um, and I want to challenge that, too. Um, and I hope that we challenge that. I'm going to read you... Um, sorry, I have to do this. I'm going to read you a poem um, by Adeseli Skirmai real quick. Yeah. And it's called Consider the Hands That Write This Letter. Is that the right one? Good. It's after Marina Wilson. Consider the hands that write this letter. Left palm pressed flat against paper, as we have done before, over my heart, in peace or reverence to the sea, some beautiful thing I saw once, felt once, snow falling like rice flung from the giant's wedding, or strangest of strange birds. And consider then the right hand and how it is a fist within which a sharpened utensil similar to the way I've held a spade the horse's reins, loping, the very fists I've seen from roads through Limay and Esteli. For years I have come to sit this way, one hand open, 
one hand closed, like a farmer who puts down seeds and gathers up. Food will come from that farming. Or, yes, it is like the way I've danced with my left hand opened around a shoulder, my right hand closed inside of another hand, and how I pray. I pray for this to be my way, sweet work alluded to in the body's position to its paper. Left hand, right hand, like an open eye, an eye closed. One hand flat against the trap door, the other hand knocking, knocking. And I'm going to read you two more poems, I think. So I don't know at all how to talk about this, about the murder in South Carolina. Um, I just don't know how to talk about it. And I'm going to read this poem. And it's not about that, but it's about that. It's called A Small Needful Fact. I don't know. I think I'm trying to think about, I don't know. Is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department which means, perhaps, with his very large hands, perhaps, in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which, most likely, some of them, in all likelihood, continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. I wasn't planning on reading that poem. There's something else to say, but I don't know what to say. I'm going to read this poem, Burial. And it's, it's, uh, it's for my father... And something that is, uh, I want to talk about the garden. I'm just thinking about this book, and one of the sort of arguments of this book is like the, the, the conversion, the need for conversion and compost, and like exactly what Todd was saying, that gardening and farming and being with the earth is like this place for that to happen. And, and I say that, and I also am like, how do, how, how do we actually convert these things? Um, but this is a poem called Burial. And I'll just, you know, has anyone used a placenta for anything? Has anyone used a placenta before in this room? Yeah, what for? Okay, okay. You too? Bing. Thank you. Thank you. You're right, you're right. The fertilizer's good. It wasn't a gang of dullards came up with chucking a fish in the planting hole or some midwife got lucky with the placenta. Oh, I'll plant a tree here. (laughs) And a sudden flush of quince and jam enough for months. Yes, the magic dust our bodies become cast spells on the roots about which someone else could tell you the chemical processes, but it's just magic to me. Which is why a couple springs ago, when first putting in my two bare root plums out back, I took the jar which has become my father's house and lonely for him and hoping to coax him back for my mother as much as me, poured some of him in the planting holes. And he dove in, glad for the robust air, saddling a slight gust into my nose and mouth, chuckling as I coughed. But mostly he disappeared into the minor yawns in the earth into which I placed the trees, splaying wide their roots, casting the gray dust of my old man evenly throughout the hole, replacing then the clods of dense Indiana soil into the roots, and my father were buried watering it all in with one hand while holding the tree with the other straight as the flag to the nation of simple joy of which my father is now a naturalized citizen, waving the flag from his subterranean lair. The roots curled around him like shawls or jungle gyms, like hookahs or the arms of ancestors before breaststroking into the xylem, riding the elevator up through the cambium and into the leaves where... When you put your ear close enough 
you can hear him whisper, good morning, where if you close your eyes and push your face, you can feel his stubbly jowls. And good Lord, this year he was giddy at the first real fruit set and nestled into the 30 or 40 plums in the two trees, peering out from the sweet meat with his hands pressed against the purple skin like cathedral glass. And imagine his joy as the sun wizarded forth those abundant sugars and I plodded barefoot and prayerful at the first ripe plum swell and blush, almost weepy, conjuring some surely ponderous verse to convey this bottomless grace. You know, oh, father, oh, father kind of stuff. (laughs) Hundreds of hot air balloons filling the sky in my chest, replacing his intubated body listing like a boat keel side up, replacing the steady stream of water from the one eye which his brother wiped before removing the tube, keeping his hand on the forehead until the last wind in his body wandered off while my brother wailed like an animal. And my mother said, weeping, it's okay, it's okay, you can go, honey at all of which my father guffawed by kicking from the first bite buckets of juice down my chin, staining one of my two button-down shirts, the salmon-colored silk one, hollering, there's more of that, almost dancing now in the plum, in the tree, the way he did as a person, bent over and biting his lip and chucking the one hip out, then the other with his elbows cocked, and fists loosely made, and eyes closed, and mouth made trumpet when he knew he could make you happy just by being a little silly and sweet. Thank you. so beautiful. Um, uh, I'm going to bring us on home with um, a poem from one of my favorite dear living poets, um, Dorian Locks. This is a poem about the ship fitter, or the title is called The Ship Fitter's Wife. And what I love about this is that there's, a, there's an adoration and a reverence for the, the kind of the dirty body, the not so perfect um, body. The Ship Fitter's Wife. I loved him most when he came home from work, his fingers still curled from fitting pipe, his denim shirt ringed with sweat and smelling of salt, the drying weeds of the ocean. I'd go to where he sat on the edge of the bed, his forehead anointed with grease, his cracked hands jammed between his thighs, and I'd unlace the steel-toed boots, stroke his ankles and calves, the pads and bones of his feet. Then I'd open his clothes and take the whole day inside of me. The ship's gray sides, the miles of copper pipe, the voice of the foreman clanging off the hull's silver ribs. Spark of lead kissing metal. The clamp, the winch, the white fire of the torch, the whistle, and the long drive home. What I love about this poem is that, well, many things, but I have a How the poem's triumph is that it's a poem that engages us deeply and for me seemingly permanently um, by creating this kind of physical mortal impact. I'm thinking of when Robert Frost said, the right reader of, and he put this all in in male point of view, so I'm changing it to female. Robert Frost says, uh, the right reader of a poem can tell the moment it strikes her that she has taken a mortal wound, that she will never, ever get over it. That is to say, permanence in poetry, as in love, is perceived instantly. I love uh, the transformation that occurs in the male body, that the male body turns it, it into a ship itself, um, the clamp, the winch, etc. And I love that the desire and consummation of the male body turns into a mode of transportation for the, for the speaker, as well as for the whole poem to kind of lift off from. I'm thinking of this, too, as something to take away from, from this session as well. I was trying to think of poetry prompts for you all as well. 
Um, and so I was thinking of something like if you wanted to write, this is something that I do as well, to write a persona poem from the point of view of an unusual occupation. That is to say, to write the body. How do, how do you describe the body via occupation? Um, how do you write desire through occupation? So again, I'm thinking of maybe some not so kind of common um, occupations, like a taxidermist. Um, how do you write the body? Um, how do you write desire of a body that spends its day recreating lifelike shapes out of a squirrel or a, um, I don't know, you've seen these, right? Um, the bad kind of taxidermy. But the good taxidermy is really kind of strong-looking animals, foreboding animals. How do you write desire through that? How about, how do you take on the occupation of someone who spends his or her day sculpting these magnificent structures out of chocolate? What kinds of words and diction would you use to describe that kind of body? And yeah, and see what happens. See what kind of magic happens um, from there. Um, I wanted to kind of read a, a second poem. Um, the next two are going to be from from collections that I have. Um, you know, I'm a child of the '80s, so my my high school or not high school, yeah, like just my crushes kind of are going to date me here, but. They were not, you know, my friends were all kind of uh, liking, you know, Ricky Schroeder, Kirk Cameron, who's, I think, completely nuts, so now I think, right? <laughs> Sorry if you're a Kirk Cameron fan here. Um, anyway, mine was um, Bill Bixby from The Incredible Hulk. Do you guys know this? Okay, so when I, when, I, when I mention The Incredible Hulk, a lot of times people think it's the CGI, the cartoon, but I know younger students, they have a hard time believing that there was actual TV drama called The Incredible Hulk, yes. Um, it won Emmys, and that would never fly today, I don't think, that um, there could be a TV show based on superheroes. But you have to, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I just wanted to play this one little bit. This is the saddest theme song <laughs> ever. The male body would just be walking onto the horizon. Let me see here. Come on, don't fail me now. Just makes me swoon. Just a... just have to take a minute. <laughs> okay. So talk about leaving my body for a moment here. I just it takes me back. So that's the Incredible Hulk I want you to think of, um, the Bill Bixby version. And this poem that I'm going to read is called What I Learned from the Incredible Hulk. When it comes to clothes, make an allowance for the unexpected. <laughs> Be sure the spare in the trunk of your station wagon with wood paneling is not in need of repair. A simple jean jacket says, hey, if you're not trying to smuggle rare Incan coins through this peaceful little town and kidnap the local orphan, I can be one heck of a mellow kind of guy. I learned that no matter how angry a man gets, a smile and a soft stroke on his bicep can, meet, can work wonders. I learned that male chests also have nipples, warm and established, and I learned that green does not always mean envy. It's the meadows full of clover and chicory that the Hulk seeks for rest, a return to normal. And sometimes, sometimes a woman gets to go with him. Her tiny hands will correct his rumpled hair, the cuts in his hand. I learned that green is the space between water and sun. It's the cover for a quiet man, each of his ribs shuttling drops of liquid light. Uh, and the last one I'm going to read today is, uh, again, I'm thinking kind of poetry prompts. Um, but I think that you could also, if you write prose, you could do this uh, for kind of microfiction, the kind of the short, short fiction, is to write a Carmina figurata, a word picture, a poem of the body, kind of. Um, and so what I did for this one, I chose ribs for two reasons. Um, I love spare ribs to eat, but also um, just in thinking about the space between human ribs and what that means for desire, um, what that means as, as kind of the framework with which to breathe. 
So a Carmina, Carmina Figurata piece of writing is a poem that's in the shape of what you're writing about. So I'm thinking like um, a Carmina Figurata poem of a body part, an organ. I haven't seen any Carmina Figuratas of, um, I don't know, kidneys, stomach shapes, you know, things like that. I chose ribs. So here's the two lines of spare ribs here. And, uh, you know, so in writing a Carmina Figurata poem, you let the shape of the body part, in this case, or an organ, let the shape dictate the form as well as content, word choice, things like that, when you know you have to have that quick short break for me anyway for the short lines, or what it means to have that long line if you're writing a poem of the long intestine or whatever, or short intestine, you know, whatever. And this is called, the final one I'll read today, and then I think we'll open it up to question and answers if we have time. This is called, Why I Crave Ribs Tonight. (laughs) Baby, don't even come near me with that napkin. Just let me add each bone, slick and sweet with smoky sugar sauce. See all the steam that I nudge off the meat, see all the steam that I nudge off all the meat with my tongue? It's the only kind of cloud we see this lemonade day in June. All this driving, and I need to feel food in my hands. No knife or fork tonight. I want to burn my lips just enough, but not too much it hurts to kiss. And that reminds me of the glowing heart inside of me, how each rib curves around, locks tight in neat snaps along the back. Make your hand like that around my small wrist and lead me into the bathroom. Stand with me in the shower and feel the tender spot just underneath my ribs. Lift my hands above my head and trace the space bone, space bone, space bone down my sides with a blue bar of soap. Let this, let this be the only way I will ever come clean. Thank you. Thanks to Amy, Ross, and Jan. Just beautiful stuff. Do you have any questions? And comments, of course, too? Not here, but you you could drag us to our our tables in the book fair, I'm sure. (laughs) Or if you have the book, of course. Other questions? Thoughts about? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he was asking about, you know, or he, he made the statement that there's a difference writing a poem about the body. And uh, certainly we heard poems about the body there, but mm-hmm. how do you write a poem from the body? How in the creative act itself is the body uh, in, in the practice? I'll just say a couple of things I do with my classes. First off, I have a, a, a singing bowl, and we start every class with the singing bowl. Uh, I want them to understand that poetry is an oral art, right, out of the mouth, O-R-A-L, and oral art, A-U-R-A-L, into the ear. We always have to read poems out loud. And, and I say that, that singing bowl, you're a singing bowl. And so as I strike it, I ask them to meditate on something, to get themselves centered for what we're going to go into. And then we do a lot of breathing exercises because I want them to realize uh, you know, Ross had said this. This is an epigraph in, in one of my books. Only on our dying breath can we speak. And I say to him, what's cool, though, is, right, you speak on your dying breath, and then you have to silence yourself and listen to the world, right, before you can speak again. And so we do a lot of breathing exercises with that as well and a lot of stuff just with our mouths. I'm a child uh, who had a speech impediment, did a lot of uh, speech therapy all through uh, elementary school. And so I love what happens in my mouth to form words, and I try to get my students to do that as well. I didn't realize how dirty these poets were. To it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, well, don't you think, I mean, I think there's something that has to happen between you and you, you know, when this happens. I mean, uh, I mean, I ask my students to use a mic and to go to readings, but mostly I think it's all about reading, reading other people's work and feeling it and standing up and reading it and feeling the line breaks. But, I mean, when you're talking about 
being inside your body, your own body, and um, getting it on the page, I think that's something that only comes over time, and the, that person has to want it, you know, has to want to get there. And so, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I, I offer a lot of tools, and after a while, you're on your own. I mean, that's, I mean, that's how I feel, you know. So the question had to do with technology and the screen world and if that separates us even more from our bodies. Um, I'll just tell you I've never had a cell phone in my life and still don't, don't have a smartphone. I, I, I live very consciously trying to make sure that my body is always, I'm present in my body and my body's always in contact with the earth. Uh, that's a very hard thing to do. I think our culture absolutely tries to separate us all the time. And, and maybe I'm just absolutely paranoid, but I feel like, you know, didn't we have this whole Matrix trilogy? And now everybody's totally plugged in. And I'm like, wait, I saw this movie. And I know I'm not Neo, but something's screwed up here. So, Yeah, I think that's so important. I, I didn't hear everything you said, but the idea that technology itself is one of the things that sort of keeps us out of our bodies. I think that's totally true, and I think it's also like there are all of these ways that we're not only kept out of our bodies, but we're kept isolated from other bodies, from other people. And I feel like that is, you know, I've been reading Fred Moten and trying to understand some of, and Fred Moten and Stefano Harvey, the undercommons, and trying to understand some of the things that they're talking about. But they talk about, among other things, this idea of professionalization and all, and being a kind of ability to isolate, ability to sort of do for yourself, you know. And I was just thinking, because I have a neighbor who, like, shares a truck with, like, two or three other people. And I was thinking, oh, right. So if you want to drive somewhere, you actually have to have a conversation and talk and negotiate and share and be disappointed and be pissed off and then reconcile and hug, you know. Um, so that's something that – and I think technology is, like, a big, obviously, obviously – way that we get driven like out of our own bodies but and we can see it like all the time i mean if we're if we're doing things right next to each other not with each other you know so i could go on and on about that but yeah thank you for that question actually and one 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 thing i'll add to that i think i think um russ is exactly right but i and i do i have a smartphone and stuff like that i'm very connected i feel but also I teach environmental writing, nature writing. And one of the, um, actually my, my absolute favorite part of the semester um, is that I, I send, we, we gather up everybody to go out to Lake Erie. I live just out, outside of Lake Erie. And I gather up their cell phones in a box, um, a little basket or something like that. We're all out there. I just send them out to observe a sunset. So 30 of us are on the, on the banks of Lake Erie watching a sunset. And I will tell you, you know, that even the most stoic kind of frat boys are like, oh, I don't know why I'm watching a sunset. <laughs> they are almost in tears. And actually, I've had many students just be in tears for 30 minutes, 30 minutes without connection to technology or a screen. They said they actually can't remember the last time they didn't, you know, get a buzz or something and then just check it immediately. And there's something I think, you know, and I can go on and on and on about this, about what it means to just watch the sunset with your whole heart and body and just you know I mean just the, the different responses and then we just had a big writing session kind of after that and it wasn't like oh I'm some great teacher or anything like that but I just gave the facility I just facilitated I forced them to not have technology with them I forced them to hear and touch and taste I had them licking different tree branches think you know um, when we're out in the snow I had them eat snows white snow not yellow snow they honestly can't remember the last time they did that since they were maybe in elementary school. Elementary school is when they were outside eating snow on purpose, tasting the world with everything, their fingertips, their whole body, and stuff like that. So I think there are ways, I don't know if I can necessarily teach it, but I think there's ways that we can all be conscious of making sure that we are out in this world with our bodies so that we can come back to the page and to the desk and to our screen and to write about it. You know, that kind of thing. So it's a small, simple experience, but 30 minutes sunset in the winter pretty much can't, can't beat that. So. 
Yes. I think it has to do with that privileging we were talking about before. Uh, and, and I think in the academy there, is, uh, there are levels of judgment at spoken word poetry, for example, and it's too bad. I mean, the world is vast and various. Our bodies are different and unique and vast and various. Why would we? Except for power, right? Some people create power by making those judgments. So uh, I agree, though. I often find in spoken word poetry this openness to the body that sometimes I don't find elsewhere. But as you heard from these poets, it's still there in print, too. So. It's usually, you know, like folks who, you know, the, the history in the academy, which is one sort of big strain of American poetry, is it's white and it's male. And it's sort of this assumed universalized body, which is non-body, which is a body. And I think slam spoken word performance, where the body is in fact an integral part of the thing, um, that questions of the body and questions of race and questions of gender and question of sexuality, etc., are more, um, it's a place where, because bodies are central to the actual, the act, you know, it, it makes sense that those are, that's one place where, where, um, where that might be more the case, where the body might feel more present to me, you know, one of many. Jan pointed out, we are over time. You guys have been a great audience, and thanks so much to these poets. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.